This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Friday, November 8th, 2019. From Slate to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. You know what I'm not that into? Anonymous. I mean, I love Anonymous's previous works. I love his cave paintings and his ancient Greek pottery. And of course, who could forget his writing such ditties as I've been working on the railroad and na 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 na. Did you know that? Yes, Anonymous wrote that. Someone wrote it. It was Anonymous. Now, of course, there was a time when Anonymous got in a nasty feud over credits with traditional and standard, but I think they cut Anonymous in on some of the profits. Him, I keep saying him, could be a her. Look at me. I mean, Anonymous really very well could be a woman. How many men do you know who produce such attention-getting work and then don't want the credit? Am I right, ladies? Men can't live with them, can't escape their role in the vast majority of incidents of interpersonal violence. And that, by the way, was first noted by, yeah, Anonymous. Yet this Anonymous guy, or gal, but probably guy, who's out now with a book, wants to tell us something about the Trump administration. But the thing he wants to tell us doesn't feel new, doesn't feel notable. It doesn't really feel worth spending a lot of my mental energy on if we can't, as they say, consider the source. And when I say as they say, you know who they is? It's anonymous. So they say, and this was one of those New York Times, you didn't ask for it, but here it is over the top of your phone, breaking news notification, breaking news, Trump officials once considered resigning en masse. An anonymous author identified as an administration official says in a new book, read our review. Listen, that is not breaking. That was a thought that was considered and dismissed two years ago. And that is not news. It did not happen. It is not worth my time. It is not worth my attention. Actual events with actual names attached, actually destroying us, are being ignored all the time. The Trump Foundation paid a $2 million fine in acknowledgement that they shouldn't have gone about their business by paying other fines of Donald Trump, not the proper use of a charity. Now, I know that was on the New York Times below the fold, but I don't think it's going to get any play. We should be paying more attention to that than Anonymous. How about this? Did you know the bailout paid to the farmers to make up for Trump's disastrous tariffs has surpassed the value of the bailout to the auto industry under Obama, which got so much attention, yet no attention has been paid to this. So this never-ending stream of stories that has an anonymous official or officials increasingly disturbed by the president's increasingly erratic behavior. I say this respectfully to all you increasingly anonymous officials. Do something about it or shut the hell up. And you can quote me by name on the show today. I spiel about the support that Pete Buttigieg is experiencing among black voters. Although if you look at the polls, maybe we should say black voter because it really doesn't exist. And we will examine one explanation as to why. But first, Edward Norton adapted the Jonathan Lethem novel, Motherless Brooklyn, and turned it into something more than a character study of a detective with a case of rootlessness and Tourette's. In this movie, Alec Baldwin plays Moses Randolph, who is clearly a pretty faithful version of Robert Moses. 
Motherless Brooklyn is an exercise in using the tools of storytelling and filmmaking and the talents of Ed Norton, Alec Baldwin, Bruce Willis, Willem Dafoe, Gugu Mbatha-Raw to tell a story of urban planning. Yeah, I said it. It's about urban planning. Ed Norton is up next. Lionel S. Rock is a gumshoe, a private dick, working a case he didn't ask for. Lionel has a brain that sometimes goes sideways on him, takes him for a joyride, but his boss and mentor sees something in Lionel. For one, it's his near-perfect recall of spoken dialogue for another loyalty. But then when Frank Minnett is rubbed out by some powerful and connected goons, Lionel won't stop until he solves the crime. Okay, now you know all this if you read Jonathan Lethem's book, Motherless Brooklyn. But in the movie, Motherless Brooklyn, written, directed, starring Edward Norton, it's all those facts are true, but it's set in the spiritual influence of the book. It's set in 1950s Brooklyn. Edward Norton is here. How are you? Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Pleasure to be in Brooklyn. First question is why? Why'd you, why'd you move it back 50 years? Well, you know, Jonathan is a lover of noir literature, noir films, and his book has a, a postmodernist Chandler feel. Mm-hmm. The characters feel like men who are caught in some bubble where time never moved from the 50s. They, they speak and act in a lot of ways like, like 50s era Gumshoes. Yeah. Um, they're they're from a boy's home. Yeah. They, <laughs> they're like they're that. they're orphans yeah. from a Catholic orphanage, grown up in the tough streets, adopted by a an operator from the neighborhood, yeah. and kind of can maybe a semi connected you know, guy. And yeah. the kid with the with the Tourette's, they call him a freak show. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't feel very nineties. Um, and Jonathan, who was coming up as a writer in Brooklyn when I was coming up as a writer in as a actor in New York, he Jonathan has said many times that for him the 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 plot was just a frame to hang the character on it, yeah. it the book if you read this book and if you're a lover of this book as many of us are it's all about the character i don't think one in a thousand people would narrate the plot of it they would <laughs> right, they would right. talk about it's a book about uh a no it is Buddhist the uh, monastery and no, yes, no. It, or the sea urchin trade no. or the yakuza it's the book is the holden caulfield of of brooklyn Right. Uh, characters it, because he Lionel lets you inside his mind from page one he's an underdog who narrates his own story to you and the the joy and the brilliance of the book are the looping arabesques of Lionel's mind and his unique condition of compulsion so you adapt this you buy this what in option this in 1999 I read it read it in 99 yeah. when did you own the option on it well Jonathan, I was, I was, I think Fight Club, it was right around when Fight Club came out that the book was about to be published yeah. and he and I talked, I told, I was very, I always try to be straightforward. I was like, I'm going to go direct another movie. I'm directing a movie and then I'm making another movie or two. It's going to be a, a while. So he kind of knew, I think we actually just bought the rights to the book straight up because I was concerned that I needed the time. Yeah. You know, I didn't want like the clock on my head. Right. Of, like some. This is all like procedural shit but the but bottom line is um i didn't get at it for a number of years but by you you hold on to the rights for this and you you wrote it like seven years ago before the current political moment back when donald trump was a reality show buffoon and then and the central character is or the central antagonist is, is alec baldwin plays a robert moses character and of course he plays trump on snl it must be very 
tempting to get a lot of Trump commentary in there, but you don't want so much that it dilutes the fact that A, this is a Robert Moses standard, and B, I do think they're very different guys. Oh, I, I mean, think Robert it, Moses was a genius. He was a genius. Thing. He was accomplished. And I was thinking about this. I think the big difference is that Robert Moses used the rules to get power, and Donald Trump uses power to break the rules. I'd say that's very true, yes. But but well, he still, al- but but still also, have, yeah, Donald Trump is dangerous. Donald, Donald Trump is dangerous the way Mussolini was dangerous for being an overt. He's out in the open. Right. All his crimes... Literally, all his crimes are are literally yeah. saying, "Yes, I'm doing them. I dare you." Yeah. This is a very this is a not perfect analogy, but Robert Moses is dangerous in the way that the Koch brothers were dangerous for a long time because no one realized what was going on. It it took a long, long time before anybody, even in like serious investigative journalism, really grasped the degree to which these two people bought. The GOP. And by the time it was realized, a lot is so baked that we, we, we still haven't covered it. So Just like Moses. Moses, right, right. Moses was the parks commissioner to the, in terms of the public view. But he was an imperial Caesar, literally like with the power of an Augustan emperor. That's how the power broker begins, like this bird's eye view. And I don't know if it's through Kara's words or just my interpretation of those words, but we have a huge aerial shot going over New York saying he's built more infrastructure than anyone since than a ancient pharaoh. Rome. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and nobody can move without his say-so. And he had, you know, hundreds of private eyes on his payrolls of his various agencies that he controlled, essentially running effectively like the German police states, the Stasi. He had his own network of information gatherers to help him roll people who got in his way. And this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like, that's not what we... No one would say, if you said from 1940 to 1968, who ran New York? LaGuardia, Mm -hmm. Wagner, John Lindsay... Nelson Rockefeller? No, mm-mm. Like, none of those people. They were all in the pocket and totally unable to do a single thing without the permission of one person. We, we have a totally dysfunctional, um, highway-oriented city that, that is the function of a person who was never supposed to have that much power essentially breaking the future. You so, know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I heard, I heard your interview with Ezra Klein, and you talked a little bit about how Alec Baldwin... Or he raised the point that Alec Baldwin played a Moses character. In fact, his first name, what is it, Moses Roberts? Moses Randolph. Moses Randolph is the character of Motherless Brooklyn. And of course, on SNL, he plays Trump. And I wondered if, I don't know if you talked to him about that, but did he relish the opportunity to play this character not as the buffoon? Not as Trump the as, as he plays Trump this broad in yes. this broad comic overtones. Yes, but I think Alex draw to it was when when he was reading it. This is a little movie insider, but he texted me and he was like, "I feel my inner Lee J Cobb coming out." Yeah, um, yeah. Which, who was the great New York character actor um, Johnny Friendly and on the waterfront right. and uh, and I think that Alec, you know, for all of his satirical gifts and and gifts as a comedian. When I was coming up in New York, he he was he was doing streetcar on Broadway. Yeah, he was Brando, and then became Lee J. Cobb. Uh, Think yeah, about that. No, and he, and he, <laughs> um, Alec has a real theater actor's gift for language, and I think he deeply, I think he's done a lot of what he's done out of a sense 
the thing about things like SNL is because it's part of pop culture too, mm-hmm. people kind of assume a certain, um, I don't know, gleefulness within it or whatever. I actually think Alec legitimately is tired. I, I, he's a, he's 60 some years old. And by the way, he's got his fifth kid under eight on the way. Yeah. He's like, he's, he, he, he's a busy guy and yeah. he thinks, and this is every Saturday night, right? Yeah. I can tell you as a point of fact that Alec, I think, has an honest to God sense that in these kinds of times, you know, bullies hate nothing more than being mocked. And that if you can mock them and if you can take them down a peg and you can, that mocking them, if it continues to help reveal them, yes, it's a, it's an important thing to do. I absolutely got that. Get that sense that he does this. He doesn't, I don't know if he hates it or likes it, but he feels obliged to do it. I, I think he feels that, that, in America, you can still do this. You can't do this in Russia. If you if you did what he's doing on SNL about Putin in Russia, you'd be fucking disappeared. Mm-hmm. But that has nothing to do with like why I wanted him in this film. It's actually the opposite. I think he has a really amazing understanding of of dark psychology in people and a capacity to you know he's very very seductive in this. He's he he presents a vision. Uh, the necessary vision to do make hard decisions to make move big problems along solve big urban problems but but then i think too it's very it was it became more and more interesting to me that within the me too movement and things like that what we were seeing was also an unmasking of the fact that the that there's this other extension of brutal power mm-hmm. which is that when people it metastasizes in people into feeling essentially like Alex says in the movie, if if I want to do something to a woman because I'm feeling like a wrecking ball out of everything else I'm doing in my life, I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? And I think that that, I think that that is, that, that's been definitely more underlined since I finished it originally. There's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. So you're, you do this movie about many things, but a, very largely about Robert Moses, this great builder who visited great consequences upon the communities that he built on. Your grandfather was James Ra- Rouse? Rouse, yeah. Rouse, who, if people don't know, this guy was on the cover of Time magazine with the headline, Cities Are Fun. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. And he is credited for being this great urban planner, but also founded an organization that very much looked at the people who could have been displaced mm-hmm. or were displaced. Well, it's, it, it's the largest nonprofit developer of affordable housing in America now. Yeah, that's your yeah. grandfather. That's yeah. your lineage. Yeah. So does the Moses thing offend you more, more so? I know about it because of him. What did he say about Moses? What were his personal interactions or he, uh, opinions uh, on Moses? I believe he only met him one time. And the fam- the story I heard from my uncle, who was in college at the time, um, was that he was very shaken after meeting with him. That it was Your grandfather the, was shaken. Yeah, that he was yeah. very shaken and, and said something to the effect that he was more dangerous than people understood. My grandfather was extremely eccentric. You know, he, he was an orphan. By the time he was like 13 or 14, he made his own way in the world. He like hitchhiked across America during yeah. the Depression. He he was a real he had a real Huck Finn kind of an existence. And he literally put himself through night school and law school hustling pool and, That's awesome. and parking cars. And, and I heard he went to the University of Hawaii before he transferred yeah, to Maryland. For, for like a year. Wow. He had a very, very, very eccentric and eclectic like youth. And 
he he rarely wore suits in his older years. He he wore like madras jackets and fishing hats. He was, and he really did say very um, homespun kind of things. Like he would say cities are fun, or he would say like cities should be gardens for growing beautiful people. Like he, and and he Willem Dafoe's character has lines that are things my grandfather said. Like uh-huh. you know, to serve people, you have to love people and. So do you... He was sort of the anti-Robert Moses. He was the anti-Robert Moses, but Rob, does it say something that Robert Moses, because he was driven in the farious and inhumane, was able to accrue so much power? And it wasn't that your grandfather wasn't a powerful person, but, you know, wouldn't stack up to uh, some of the great nefarious builders of his age. No, but he was very effective. I mean, downtown Baltimore was viewed as a hellhole. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was growing up in the 70s, the the inner harbor of Baltimore was literally a dump. Yeah. It was there was a, a dump there. And and what became the transformation of downtown Baltimore began with his conviction that you could redevelop the waterfront. And then on top of it, I mean, he helped develop the whole con- concept of the low income housing tax credit, this federal tax credit mechanism that that became he was a huge advocate for passing it in 86 and it's like the greatest hundreds and hundreds hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars into um affordable housing development through this very smart market incentive and and you know his organization has has built like a million units of housing in america like it's it's a it's one of the you know ten thousand community-based organizations in america under enterprises network doing affordable housing development it's it's an astonishing it's it's one of the most significant urban renewal organizations in America, and he built that from scratch. Was he, as a person or as an idea, very important to you as a kid growing up? Yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, was he active in your every, life? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I worked with Grandpa for, all the time. I was. I worked for him when I got out of college. I worked in affordable housing. I used my first job in New York was going to the Bronx and Crown Heights and Bed Stuy and. Washington Heights, Lower East Side, and interviewing people who had been homeless or significantly mm-hmm. dislocated and who had finally who had gotten an affordable home through one of Enterprise's New York developments. In the early 90s, Enterprise was taking city-owned abandoned buildings and working to figure out with the city how to rehab them and ultimately did thousands of renovated and restored into good affordable ho- housing, um, thousands of city-owned abandoned buildings. The funny thing is I knew lots of people who were like Laura Rose, like the lead, the, the, the female lead in this film, who are what I would call true American heroes, not just New York heroes. They were people who had come, gone out, gotten educated, come back to their own communities and started organizations like Community League of West 159th Street, which became Community League of the Heights, which is you know now a significant um, housing developer, social service provider. And the, and the people who the people who were in in there like block by block doing advocacy for people, like th- those those are like truly like the greatest Americans. Motherless Brooklyn is the name of the film. Listen, you might like your special effects as you know Hulk hulking up. To me, if you could take a ride over the Triborough Bridge and the camera pans and you get to see New York in 1959, that's the greatest special effect that I could witness. Edward Norton is the director, writer, and stars in Motherless Brooklyn. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. And now the spiel. Yesterday I talked about Pete Buttigieg, his lack of experience. I made a glancing reference to his homosexuality. I didn't even mention that he was doing quite poorly in the black community. 
Are those two things related? Maybe. Is it worth considering? No, it is not. It is racist to think so, says New York Times columnist Charles Blow. Headline, stop blaming black homophobia for Buttigieg's problems. Problems. He's actually doing pretty well. He's better better than you'd think he'd be doing, considering where he comes from and what his name is and the fact that he's 37. But okay. At issue is this, a very small focus group, which was put out there by the Buttigieg campaign, quoted an undecided black voter or two saying they were uncomfortable with Buttigieg's sexuality. Quote, being gay was a barrier for these voters, particularly for the men who seemed deeply uncomfortable even discussing it. That according to the Benenson strategy group that, uh, that, that Buttigieg hired pollster, and they said of these voters, 24 voters, their preference is for his sexuality to not be front and center. Having observed Pete Buttigieg, I would say that's basically his preference too. So let's just conclude that this focus group and those quotes, that does not count as a robust factual basis to conclude that Buttigieg being gay is what is hurting him with black voters. Fine. But let's hear what Charles Blow argues. Quote, reducing Pete Buttigieg's struggle to attract black support solely to black homophobia is not only erroneous, it is a disgusting racist trope secretly nursed and insidiously whispered by white liberals with contempt for the very black people they court and need. That's a little ridiculous. First of all, there is a straw man in there reducing the struggle to attract black support solely to black homophobia is erroneous, disgusting, blah, blah, blah. All right. I mean, if you were to read the blow column, literally, it is a broadside against anyone who solely blames homophobia for Pete Buttigieg's failure to make inroads in the black community. I have literally heard no one solely blaming homophobia. So this is basically railing against no one. What's really going on in this column is better put and more reasonably argued by Jonathan Capehart in the Washington Post. Charles Blow is bisexual and black. Capehart is gay and black. They've both certainly experienced the cross currents of these attitudes firsthand. They make clear that they write from a position of personal pain to some extent. Capehart quotes South Carolina Representative James Clyburn acknowledging that Buttigieg's sexuality could be a factor in the mind of some South Carolina Democrats. Quote, I'm not going to sit here, Clyburn said, and tell you otherwise because I think everybody knows that's an issue, but I'm saying... It's an issue, not the way it used to be. Capehart goes on. Clyburn is right on both points. This is Capehart writing. Only a naif would think that Buttigieg's sexual orientation would not be an issue, not just for some African Americans, but also for the country as a whole. And that is what his argument and Charles Blow's argument comes down to. It's wrong to blame black voters for being homophobic because America, white America, is also homophobic. That is true. That is fair. But crucially, we are talking about Buttigieg's lack of popularity among black voters in the Democratic primary. Most voters who are anti-gay or against gay marriage or against gay rights do not vote in the Democratic primary. But almost all black voters, no matter what their attitudes on anything, almost all do vote in the Democratic primary. So the apt comparison is not between African-Americans and other Americans. It's between African-Americans and their fellow Democrats, which groups are more or less anti-gay. 
Are African-Americans more anti-gay than other Democrats? The answer is clearly yes, they are. Blow and Capehart sidestep this important distinction. So let's look at polling on gay marriage. In the most recent Pew poll, 64% of white Americans say they favor gay marriage. That number for black Americans, 51%. Capehart acknowledges that these are the attitudes, but says African-American support for gay marriage is lower than other ethnic groups, but not significantly so. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about what statistical significance is, yes, that difference is statistically significant. If it's a judgment of, is it really significant? Would you use the word significant to describe a difference between 64% support of gay marriage and 51% support of gay marriage? I don't know. Seems notable to some of the people I talk to. There are other findings other than attitudes towards gay marriage that consistently show that white Americans have more, let us say, pro-gay attitudes than black Americans. They do the general social survey. It's the gold standard of societal attitudes. The University of Chicago helps administer this. The last survey found 47% of African Americans agreed with the statement that it is always wrong for same-sex adults to have sexual relations. 27% of white respondents said so. Charles Blow grapples with this difference by saying, yes, but that's because black people tend to be more religious. Sure, fine, stipulated, but it's beside the point. However, while I was looking up the statistics on black Americans' attitudes towards gays, I found something really interesting. Yes, it is true, as we just said, that African Americans tend to favor gay marriage less than other Democrats and less than even white Americans. However... When it comes to discrimination, black Americans hate it. Here's the stat. Black Americans are more likely than any other racial or ethnic group to perceive discrimination against gay, lesbian, or transgender people. Nearly three quarters of black Americans, 73%, say that gay and lesbian people experience discrimination, and they say that of 72% of transgender people. Now you ask white Americans this question, and only 54% of them perceive significant discrimination against gay and lesbian people and 59% of white Americans perceive discrimination against transgender people. Also, when it comes to other forms of discrimination, a Pew survey found that 61% of African Americans say that a wedding-related business should be required to serve same-sex couples compared to 45% Americans who say the same. This is fascinating. 51% of black Americans favor gay marriage, but 10% more than that say still a wedding business should be required to serve same-sex couples. Huh. So this leads me to believe that maybe the church is saying something about souls, but the lived experience of black people dictates something about the right way to treat their fellow citizens or maybe just the right way to sensitively contemplate the cost of denying American services that they're entitled to. Overall, I would say it seems defensive and inaccurate not to look at the data, to only look at feelings, to get upset, to allege racism, to dismiss out of hand the idea that black voters might not be disproportionately suspicious towards a Buttigieg candidacy because of his sexuality more so than other members of the Democratic coalition, okay? But it's also wrong to say 
which no one has, <laughs> that these general attitudes that may exist, they're exactly the only determinant of Pete Buttigieg's chances or standing. As Jonathan Capehart himself notes, black voters are very practical and they very much want to beat Trump. And if the candidate who could do that is a 37-year-old gay veteran, well, they'd be entirely on board. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He enjoyed Anonymous's last album featuring T-Pain. Christina DeJosa also produces The Gist. She wants to remake a Nancy Drew novel where Nancy meets a character who is a clear stand-in for the real-life figure, former Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, Stuart Eisenstadt. The Gist. I bought the rights to a book written in 1999, but I'm going to set it in 2017 so I don't have to supply flip phones to all the people in the background and also so I could work in a few references to things being on fleek. Oomperu de Peru and thanks for listening.